Entrepreneurs Over 40, Episode 7, featuring Dave Stokes talking about how he profits helping authors create audiobooks. The beautiful benefit of, of being in this business is that I need to edit these books and listen to them from top to tail. And I have to pretend that I'm the client, I'm the customer actually consuming this content. You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills. Our guest today started out in IT working as a systems analyst for companies like JB Ware and MicroResponse. He then ventured into the world of software development, working with a number of subject matter experts to deliver new applications revolving around the Microsoft Office suite. He went on to found Author to Audio, a studio-free audiobook recording, editing, publishing, and distribution platform geared to help authors and podcasters get their messages out into the world. Did I mention he speaks English and German as well as playing the drums? Introducing the one and only Dave Stokes. Dave, can you take a few moments and fill in the gaps from that intro and bring us up to speed with what's going on in your world? Uh, thanks, Greg. That's a wonderful introduction. I'm always amazed at how, um, how much better somebody else introduces you rather than you being able to introduce yourself. So, um, so thank you for that very kind, uh, very kind intro. Look, I think um, working working backwards, what motivated the move into uh, helping authors with their audio books and podcast recording was probably two things. There's the background in in IT, in software development on the one side, so embracing the technology that everyone's uh, so attached and fond of now but also the um, the music background i think i've spent a lot of time recording bands that i've played with over the years so it was kind of like a dovetailing of those two things but like like all of these elephants in the room in life it actually took someone else to point it out to me so a friend by the name of um, kylie bartlett said um, said hey dave you've just finished a, a contract and it was a software development contract with one of the major banks over here and she said look you've got the it background you've got the um, you've got the music background people can't get an audiobook produced for less than about fifteen thousand dollars so the professional studios are charging a bomb to get audiobooks produced and she said look why don't you think about it like a mobile service or perhaps a, a more do-it-yourself kind of service that, that people could do at home because we all have this beautiful cheap technology available to us now which is studio quality it's a, it's the sort of thing we're using now greg so that was that was kind of the 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 leap or the move or the fork in the road i suppose it was where the two too many analogies all in a row here but the two the two rivers came together i guess there was a confluence into um, into audiobooks and it's been almost five years now with author to audios so it, it can pay for itself now which is a, a great relief for any any entrepreneur I know you came from an IT background, but did you have any entrepreneurial background before that? Was anyone in your family, you know, an entrepreneur? They have their own business, or was it just been you? Sure, that's a, that's a really really interesting question. Um, if I go way back to my um, to my fourth great grandfather, he partnered together during the eighteen hundreds in the early days of settlement in Australia. And he was a, an immigrant from, um, from the UK. His, his name was Frederick Stokes. And he partnered with a gentleman by the name of John Fairfax. Now to, um, to Australians, the Fairfaxes are a major um, media family. So th those two partners actually got together to make up the major paper in New South Wales called the Sydney Morning Herald. 
So I think we could probably put Frederick in the entrepreneur kind of uh, area. He came out he came out from Britain basically with printing skills, and in those days the colony was very very skinny on um, on skilled workers, you know, with any kind of technical knowledge. So so I, I suppose maybe some of that might have dribbled down the the bloodline. But from my own point of view, I think it's been working within large corporations um, for quite a bit of my career, some small ones as well. But it's been sort of businesses within within businesses. I've, I've found that's happened a lot throughout my career, that once you start working for a department, you became a cog in the wheel. But it's a series of all little engines that combine together to make the whole thing work. So I, I suppose to some degree there's that's called an uh, that's called an intrapreneur. I think I've heard that term. So working within an organisation rather than you know like a sole trader or out on your own. Yeah, a lot of these organisations they get so large that you're almost at cross purposes with them sometimes as an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Greg. And I imagine you've I imagine you've found the same thing in your in your own IT career. You've worked for some of the really some of the larger organizations but also some of the smaller more agile ones you know particularly back in the 80s there was computer companies were you know popping up like daisies you know, just everywhere in those days you know i wish i knew then what i know now i could go back and i would have started one you now i was you know always working for someone else in that regard it's a big change of mindset. It really, it really is. I mean, it's certainly very risky. I mean, I'd say to anyone, anyone who is thinking about going out on their own, the first thing to do is to try. If you, if you can have a couple of years worth of net income in your bank account, then in my experience, you're going to need every bit of that because it'll take you four years to, um, to you know, be able to cross the line. So they're they're pretty they're pretty slim slim times in the early days. Yeah, I was laughing because uh, in my earlier days, I you know, would be lucky to have had two months savings, and that was probably pushing it. Now the priorities change, though. That's very true. Yeah, well, I started with um, I started with a little bit of family help and about six months worth of um, with the income behind me, and I thought within twelve months this is going to be the make or break. You know, it's either going to work or not work at the end of that twelve month period. But of course, by the time you get to twelve months, you've already established if you've been lucky and careful, you've already established quite a few client relationships by that stage. So it's not that easy to sort of just you know close up the shop and lock the door and walk away from it. You've you've started to build a reputation in your business. So it's not as not as easy as it's not as um, temporary or disposable as I think sometimes people attended, you know, tempted to think. So how did you get started recording audiobooks for authors? Essentially I got started by um, I had a, a wonderful introduction to an independent publisher who uh, mainly looked after authors who were creating or wanted to create business-related books. So this would be a story of uh, someone who'd been in an industry for, say, you know, more than more than 20 years generally, had uh, built an organisation and wanted to share all of those lovely shortcuts and tips that, as you were saying before, Greg, you know, if you, if you knew what you knew now then, then you'd probably save yourself a whole bunch of time and heartache. So I think there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of business authors are motivated to share that information, and it also gives them a lovely authority when they're uh, when they're sharing it in a uh, in a book format and become an author. 
and they were all becoming very curious through through this. And the, the independent publisher, by the way, is now called Publish Central. And the gentleman I spoke to was Mike and still have a relationship with is Michael Hanrahan. And Michael was um, was uh, coaching and helping all of these authors plan to produce these business books. And he was helping them with the with the editing and the um, typesetting layout and and uh, publication. And uh, when we first met up together, when I approached him, he said, look, um, I'm finding more and more often now that authors are quite happy with their, their print version and they're happy with their ebook version, but they're all start, you know, a lot of them are starting to ask questions about, you know, should I do an audio book? So that was the, that was the very beginning of, of that relationship. So I've got a lot to thank Michael for in the early days. So he really got me started with my first sort of 10 to 20 clients. Is there ever an instance where an author should not have an audiobook? That's a great question. There's there's only one, probably the most challenging author I've had was a financial advisor. So a, um, a CFO, I think they're normally referred to now, chief financial officer. And she was talking about her, ex- her experience uh, throughout the course of her book. And in one particular chapter, when she's talking about she's talking about forecasting, so things like uh, you know business revenue forecasting and cash flow forecasting, and we got to a page in her book where there was a diagram which showed a three-year cash flow projection. So across the top we had month by month, and then we had maybe fifteen revenue items, and then another twenty expense items. And if you can imagine the matrix that we're looking at there, it had to be turned vertically uh, so that it would fit onto the page and we got to that section of the book and um and amanda said so dave what do i do with this how is this going to work in audio and i said amanda it's not (laughs) it just it just won't so um so there are certain objects a certain you know particularly diagrams and large tables which and long lists of things which really don't provide any kind of entertaining audio but our way around that greg is to is to provide a companion a companion document along with the audio book and we'll refer to it during the audio book saying so for the 36 month cash flow projection go and have a look at davestokes.com front slash book download the pdf and then you can visually look at the look at the cash flow for, forecast whilst you have the audio paused so once you've digested that information you can then unpause the audio and continue to hear the story so similar problem with a with a gin distiller who had lists of maybe 30 or 40 different botanicals that would be included in a gin recipe so there's juniper berries and cardamom orange peel arrowroot there are there's this great long list of botanicals which you know conspire together to make this beautiful gin. And again, I said to the, the author Marcel, I think you're just going to be listening here for a good minute, and I think you're really going to lose the audience. So we use the same solution as to provide that information in a visual document that, that you can use along with the audio book. So that they've been the they've been the really big big challenges. But apart from that, I think the authenticity of the author's voice is usually the most brilliant thing to include. So very rarely will we use a narrator to completely replace the voice of the author. We may use narrators to help support the story. So if it's third party people talking about the author or or they're talking about someone else, we might use male and female voice actors to um, provide a bit of interest in, in the story. 
because it doesn't always make sense for it to be told in the author's voice. But essentially, a big part of your credibility is is what you sound like and people recognise you, people remember your voice. So I think that's a, one of the key strategies in those terms. So I haven't had to reject any any author from doing the narration themselves, at least a, at least a, a major part of it anyway. Now, your clients, are they mainly nonfiction or are there some fiction as well? Nonfiction, nonfiction, Greg, Greg I've had, um, I've been fortunate enough to do about four um, children's book authors lately, which is, they're, they're really great books. I mean, they're often much, much shorter uh, for stars and they're often, they often come with beautiful illustrations. So the product that we end up coming up with in the end is usually a combination of the audio and the visuals. And I'm not sure if um, you've had this experience on your on your on your iPad, but um, there are touchscreen books which are available. And so if you actually if you actually interact with the book and you tap on a certain part of the book, then we can actually ask. Then the book will actually read read back what's uh, a sentence, or it will make a special sound effect. So it's, it's a fantastic tool for helping kids learn how to read because they can see the words and then tap the words and then actually hear how they're, how they're said. And, of course, in that environment, they're getting all that lovely, rich illustration that's been done for the, uh, that's been done for the book. So that, that's becoming a very popular format for use in, in schools and, and a great educational tool for kids who are perhaps a little bit reluctant about reading. This, this makes it more fun. And particularly for kids who have um, um, dyslexia, for example, um, for them, they can understand usually really well what's being said to them, but to make the translation between what they hear and what those symbols represent on the page, you know, the text itself, that can be a big challenge challenge for them. So. Audiobooks are increasingly being used in kids who are, who are impacted by those sorts of learning difficulties. So, so that's kind of the fiction end of the business at this stage. Um, I haven't done any large fiction works at the moment. It's kind of a it's it's a different scenario. Um, more often than not, it's become the the business authors because that they are more they're on a track to use their information. More often than not, they'll break it down into chapters. Or they'll take out, you know, particularly uh, you know lists of tips and stuff like that that they they actually produce during the book. So they're able to take their book and break it down into little pieces and use it for um, social media. So most of the work's been around the business, which has been interesting, as as you say. I've I've learned I've learned about um, I've learned about vaginal prolapse. Um, I've learned about um, hair and beauty salons and how to make a how to make a great hairdressing salon. Where else are we in? There's there's financial financial accounting, how to distill your own gin. And so of course the beautiful benefit of, of being in this business is that I need to edit these books and listen to them from top to tail. And I have to pretend that I'm the client, I'm the customer actually consuming this content. So I have to not only listen to it, but also kind of rate it in terms of its ability to be understood, if you know what I mean, and feed that back to the author. And so, um, so I'm becoming qualified in all of these um, in all of these amazing industries and, and practices that people get up to. So it's an incredible uh, uh, it's an incredible learning experience, which was completely unanticipated in the beginning. I hadn't sort of thought of that, but it's uh, it's made me something of an expert in all of these amazing disparate areas that that I would have never had exposure to. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. You know, from the standpoint of you're getting a, a free education in those regards. 
beautifully put. It is exactly that, exactly that. And these and these are you know these, these are people who are at the top of their game in terms of their industries and and markets. So it's uh, it's fantastic that way. What percentage of authors do you think have an audio book now? Ironically, the audio book the the audio book product isn't really all that new. Given given the amount of um, vintage blonde that both you and I have. Have Greg, um, we can. I'm sure we can go back to the 70s and occasionally remember maybe maybe even a family holiday in the car where where dad you know dad jumps into the car and he's got this he's got this kind of book and it has eight or ten or twelve cassette tapes and he would just pop them into the into the tape player in the car and we would listen tape after tape and and we would listen to some fantastic children's story or a, a memoir or you know whatever it might be so so really the the actual the, the concept is the name has changed i mean they were referred to as talking books in those days and i think apart from entertainment for children and to make to make literature available to people who might be vision impaired for example I think that's as much as people kind of thought of it. You know, that was pretty much where what it was all for. And then um, the big the big change I think occurred in the um, in the nineties, and especially in Australia. And I think maybe this happens in the US as well. Is that there's quite a lot of long haul trucking that goes backwards and forwards across across the country. And what the truck drivers were finding was that, um, and, and in Australia we have like a national a national radio carrier. I'm, I'm not sure if there's an equivalent in the in the US, but the the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. So you, you guys have got your own ABC over there, yeah. And the ABC has a thing called Radio National. So they broadcast the ABC, and it's got reach across the entire country. But what was happening, of course, is that the truck drivers were tuned into the local radio stations, and then they would get sort of 20 kilometres or, you know, 10, 15, 20 miles out of that town centre. They would lose the signal from that radio station, and the only thing they could listen to was the national broadcaster, which started to wear very thin after, after a while. And so... What happened was that some very enterprising uh, retailers thought what we should do is start putting these cassette tapes in the truck stops. And so they started putting these things up for sale and they found that the truck drivers were buying these things and they were doing everything from buying buying uh, tapes and, and CDs by this stage as well. Uh, that were courses in learning how to speak Spanish. And so the truckies were, were actually, you know, using that time to listen to entertaining stuff, but also educating themselves on these long, long haul uh, uh, truck routes and things like that. So the push in the marketplace actually came from the road. It came from the trucking industry. And then people started seeing in those roadhouses these things available then it started to sort of spread out to the broader community where where people would say hey that's great look we've got some charles dickens stories we can play for the kids because you know like in, in australia like the us i mean you can do some very long family holiday drives you know you can do massive ones you know they're three three days worth of driving to get from you know one side of the one side of the country or from the top to the bottom or whatever so i think that's where it's kind of three days of driving and you're missing a family member yeah, that's right. That's right. There's always there's always one in the car who's just that bit naughtier or you know more car sick than all the rest. I'm just going to fast forward to today, Greg. So all, all of what we're talking about here, the um, the cassette tape and the CD, it's all given way to the 
to the mobile mobile phone and and as you know from your IT background as well I mean we we have more computing power avail- available more more power than they had to send the um, Apollo 11 astronauts to the moon yeah so you know but by a long stretch by by a factor of 50 you know or 100 or even a thousand so we have all this incredible capacity on our phones and of course one of the things you can do with that is that you can use it to use it to play an audio book and if you don't if you don't like what's being played through the family you know the, the family car stereo then you can just plug in your earpods and listen to your own story so there's been an incredible development in the in the product itself so I've never really contemplated producing any kind of physical product as well. Occasionally, people will ask me whether I produce CDs. The most that I've done is to occasionally put an audio book on it onto a, a little themed uh, USB stick. So, for example, one of the jobs I'd quoted for was a wonderful woman who'd written a book about buying your first house. Her book ended up being picked up by one of the major banks who were having a, um, a presentation to, I think it was approximately 10,000 people over a five-day period. And each one of those individuals in the audience would receive this little USB stick with her book on it. And it was in the shape of a front front door key. Okay, that's pretty clever. <laughs> yeah, but apart from that now, I think it's all, um, you know, it's, it's 100% digital now. It's just, you know, so very easy to just, you know, click and play. I can see these books being, especially the nonfiction books, being as a virtual business card or a lead magnet for giving a person authority in their space and business. Why do you think that storytelling has kind of emerged now as kind of a a force in business and in online marketing? Fantastic question, Greg. I think I think in the same in the same way that we've kind of done that full circle, really back to those back to those days in the in the eighties um, and and the seventies on those family holidays with the um, cassette tapes playing in the car. Re- really, we are you know we, we are actually back to that stage with audiobooks now, just that we're delivering it in a in a totally different um, method. But it's really still the same idea. And if we talk about storytelling, then um, storytelling itself, it predates language. It certainly predates text. It, it predates written language. It predates uh, printing technologies. It predates printing printing technologies. I mean, effectively, if, if we went back, if we went back a million a million years, then the two the two of us are, are together on a hunt, and Greg sees something and just goes, oh. and I say, and I see the same thing and just go, oh. you know, message conveyed. Greg's just seen some prey over there, and he's just alerted Dave to it. Dave sees it too, and you know we're off to we're off to pursue it. So without words, without language, you know, with just a series of grunts is enough to, you know, generate the story. And I think to me that's the really important thing about storytelling, and particularly about about audible, uh, the the auditory format, is that we can not only share the words but we can also share the feeling behind those words which if you're reading it's not quite so easy i mean you've got your own interpretation of what you think the author means but you're really creating the movie inside your head whereas for an audiobook you are actually hearing the absolute emotion intention and and emphasis behind that story that's intended by the author in their own words so and that generally has helped i think the second factor in business i think is that um and again, 
something perhaps we share in common having worked for some large corporations over the years we have seen lots and lots of corporate presentations by the leaders of leaders of industry where we've sat down in a in a, in a staff room in a, in a group of 500 people listening to a town hall presentation which describes uh, the company's objectives for what we want to do you know in the next 12 months you know our 12 month plan and we've sat through an hour's worth of PowerPoint presentations that go through very, very, you know, esoteric, hard to understand and abstract concepts. Whereas now those same presentations, there's a huge shift towards starting the story with, um, well, the other day in our in our Delaware store, a woman fell over and, and hit the floor and one of our staff members went immediately over to help her. And she said, look, the terrible problem is that I don't have my heart medication with me. Um, but there's some in my purse. I don't have any. If you would be so kind as to fill that prescription, then that will sort me out and I'll feel better within half an hour. So off goes the store representative, goes to the local drugstore, fills the prescription, comes back to the client who's been made comfortable and given a glass of water, gives her the heart medication, and then half an hour later, she's back on her feet and she's feeling fine. As opposed to a PowerPoint slide that says, we take ultimate care of our customers and nobody in the industry is going to take better care of their customers than we do. And everyone goes, well, yeah, <laughs> but but the story about the fallen customer, and this actually demonstrates exactly what was, what was done. You know, it's a more engaging way of getting the point across. People are going to remember that one as opposed to the just, you know, remember these 50 things and remember all of them and commit them to memory and, you know, rote learn them and be able to be able to trot them out at a moment's moment's notice. So I think there's been that subtle way in which storytelling's kind of been introduced in, into corporations, certainly certainly within the Australian context. Are you, are you finding the same thing over in the US? I think we engage more with stories. I was engaging with your story about the lady that fell and the manager went and got her prescription filled. Yeah, I think that's an awesome display of customer service and empathy. Let's talk about your process. How do you start the process from somebody comes to you and they want to have an audio book? My first question to the client, Greg, when somebody comes to me for an audio book is probably a little bit, a bit counterintuitive because I normally, I'm, one of my first questions for them is, is like, what do you want an audio book for? Like, why do you want one? And it, it often, it often meets with a, you know, the chin sort of goes back into the chest and people going, you know, hang on, mate, you're supposed to be selling me something here. And I say, well, I know it's an unusual question, question to ask, but I really, it's important for me to understand what what the what the motivation is for the for the author. What really what it is that they feel they will they will gain. What sort of benefit they will gain. How how the, how they're going to use it. So it sort of opens up to a broader question around what, what are their expectations around the around the process and and more so about the outcomes and the product. You know what are the, what do they want to use it for? You know what, why would you use me? And um, probably eight out of 10 times now, that question is met with the response, my readers have demanded it. My readers are asking me for an audio version of my book. So that's the that becomes a really useful or really interesting bit of um, bit of market market research is it's not the author waking up one morning going, you know, I really need an audio version of my book. They're not just cooking up the idea out of their imagination or just the next thing to do or whatever. There are actually people who are saying, I would much prefer to consume your information in audio. And it would seem that a great percentage of that population are people who are very time poor, number one. And secondly, most of them are men. So us guys are not renowned as being great readers. We will read technical information and you know things we need to learn to develop a skill 
that, that sort of stuff will eat that up. Um, but very few guys um, read for pleasure. Something like 75 to 80% of estimated consumption across Amazon is by, is by women. Women are amazingly, you know, amazing, voracious consumers of, um, of literature, whereas for guys it just hasn't been the case. But now all of a sudden this little game changer comes in where I can be driving in the car, I can be mowing my lawn, I can be walking the dog, I can be doing something at the same time, which is kind of a you know like a low intellectual requirement level thing. And um, and of course, you know, all of us guys, you know, including you and me, have been told to go out and get more exercise. And so this is something you can do on your walk or your run or your bike ride. You can literally just pop in the earpieces and you can consume half an hour of an audio book while you do your daily exercise. So what we're finding is that audio books are growing at somewhere around the rate of about 20 to 30% across most sort of first world countries. Countries and something like 70% of that growth are males, male customers. So it's the guys that are getting interested in interested in audio. And I think part of it is this kind of pragmatic kind of I, I can't see myself sitting around curled up on the couch reading a you know reading a paperback or a romance novel. But what I can see myself is um, doing is learning about you know like learning about Amelia Earhart for example. And I'm gonna I'm gonna pick off a few chapters in audio while I go around the around the park with the dog that's sort of what the market is is saying about um, audiobooks and and guys generally prefer to read non-fiction so there's uh, this huge increase in the amount of non-fiction which has been consumed in in audio and uh, and guys are just lapping it up it's it suits us better somehow i think as as a huge generalization uh, there are certainly plenty of women who love listening to audiobooks as well uh, particularly ones who get airsick a friend a friend of mine says as soon as i get into a plane or a car I have to put the paper back down. You know, that's the end of the story. But now if I'm flying for business, I can actually pick up the book where I left off and listen to it in audio on the plane and I'm not looking down. I don't feel I don't feel ill in the car or I can keep my horizon and all that sort of stuff. So 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 that's that's probably the first the first big part of the process is talking to the author to understand what their motivations are, why that why they want the why they want the audiobook. Um, beyond that, Greg, essentially it's a three-step process. So it's record, edit, and publish. So the recording phase will go through a uh, – we'll generally set up the, the, the author to record in their own home. Some will have a facility like you have at home at the moment. So they'll have a smallish room that's, um, you know, fairly well soundproof. You've probably got some clothes hanging. Ideally, you've got some soft furnishings around you like, a, you know, a sofa – Preferably ceilings aren't too high, um, carpeting on the floors, and um, there's a couple of tricky things we can do, like putting um, putting pillows behind your laptop screen. That absorbs a little bit of that um, of that ring that you can get in the recording in the room. So once we've got got them up and running, the author will go through the process, and they'll say to me, "Hey, Dave, so that's good. So my books, my book is forty thousand words long. Like, how long is that going to be as an audio book?" And I say, "Probably going to be five, maybe five and a half hours, something like that." And they just go, "That's fantastic. I'll get the whole thing." done tomorrow morning i'll um, send you the recording by lunchtime tomorrow and so hang up the phone and i go i don't think you will <laughs> but anyway and and then three days later i get this call from this author going man that was really hard <laughs> 
difficult in terms of um, bending of emotional energy, but also just the amount of physical effort that's required to really, you know, put your all into a, a reading from something that's very close to your heart. You know, these are deeply held beliefs that people have about what they've written about. And so it's it's a much more energetic process than most authors think about. And that's universally true. They all come all keen to get out of the starting blocks and, you know, get this done in a minute. And then a week later, we hear back from going, well, that was quite uh, that was quite hard. And the more inexperienced ones too, Greg, what I tend to suggest is that once the author has finished recording their entire book, that they actually go back after they're finished, they go back and record, say, re-record the introduction and chapter one, purely because they're really on their game, their speaking muscle is toned, and they're much more relaxed at, at the microphone than they are in the first couple of chapters so that's often what we suggest go through read the whole book and then just read the first two sections again and then nine times out of ten i'll actually take the second recording because that they just sound so much better relaxed comfortable and you know you've got to remember that the person listening to your book if you sound impatient or uh, anxious or you're in a big hurry to get out of there and get this thing done then that feeling is going to be conveyed to the person who's listening to your book. And it will make them feel, you know, kind of like, what, what's wrong with this guy? Why is he in such a hurry? Like, you know, what's wrong? So that's that's just part of the sort of coaching process. And then the rest of it's really technical. The editing editing time is to remove a lot of the breaths. Most authors will make around about 100 mistakes. So speaking areas, misreads, about 100 per hour. That's, that's a, a pretty good sort of average where they will stop, repeat the sentence. Generally speaking, it takes about four times the amount of audio to do the editing. So one hour of recorded time will generally take about four hours to complete for, for editing. So that's the rough ratio. So, you know, a five-hour audio book, I will have spent, you know, 20, 20 hours and up uh, doing the editing. So that's one of those things. Editing's very much the, it's the back office kind of process and it's, you know, it's never appreciated as much as the editors want it to be. But, you know, it's something people don't see. So, so but that's that's the big strength in the product and, and it's a major factor in the quality of what you're going to produce in the end. And then beyond that, we put it all together, give it back to the author, give them a bit of a listen. Most authors will generally give it to their um, to their partner or friends or or even an enemy to actually listen to it and get some feedback as to what they think think about it. And then we'll go the final step and we'll distribute it to um, to Audible, to Amazon, to um, Apple, Apple Books, uh, Spotify, Google Play, and there's around about another 10 sort of online retailers for audiobooks now. So we get we get the, the author broad distribution out to those different areas. And more and more authors are actually putting the book up for sale, the audiobook and the paperback and the ebook. They're putting it up for sale on their websites and selling direct to the community. So that's that's an increasing part of the game. And of course, instead of giving away 75 cents out of the dollar to um, Amazon, you're you're collecting the full dollar for that book that you've sold. So so that's it's kind of a mix of the of the local marketing for people that you know in your tribe and then going out to the entire world to get that all done, mate. So that was an outrageously long answer to your question. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> No, that's a good answer, but are you going in with the uh, book recordings at their house? Are you going there? How's that work? Yeah, really good question, Greg. So this is where the businesses started to divide into into two, especially during 2020, during, during COVID. I, I started receiving more and more requests to help people set up and produce their podcast episodes and their podcast 
their podcast series. So in that in that case, Zencaster, um, Zoom has been very commonly very commonly used. Uh, Riverside FM, as you, as you mentioned, and people are using that as a remote interviewing interviewing tool, usually like we're doing here now, capturing pardon me, capturing audio and video. And then they've got a couple of different assets that they can choose to use. They might use some of the video to capture some of the like you know the funny, amusing, or insightful parts of, and then use that on social media to kind of pepper some breadcrumb some interest in a forthcoming podcast episode. As far as the audiobooks are concerned, unfortunately, although Zencaster and Riverside FM are very, very close to an appropriate system for recording an audiobook, at the end of at the end of the day, because because it's a one-way channel, we, we basically, you know, in musical terms, we have one instrument, which is the author's voice, one instrument recording into one microphone, recording into one device, be it a laptop. And, and I have authors who have recorded direct to their mobile phones. I mean, mobile phone audio quality, recording quality is sufficient now that you can get studio quality recording on a uh, mobile. So regardless of the device that they use, it's just a single input. So we don't actually necessarily need the communication between two individuals so and i suppose that's one of the things that where authors have tried to self-publish their own audio books they they often tend to get into trouble with being able to jump the audio requirements for people like amazon and the acx the audio book creation exchange they have basically set the standards across all retailers for for audiobooks and it's quite challenging it took me probably my first five or six audiobooks before I really settled the process down and, and realized that we had to be careful of this and that and the other thing so there's there's quite a bit of technical tweaking and you have a few like constraint problems in 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 jumping their audio requirements so you can you can fix one thing and it'll unfix another it's it's that sort of constraint stuff so they work within a very tight requirement so that's something that everyone finds a big challenge with if they go yeah yeah audiobook going to produce it myself well that's fine but they'll often come to me and say hey dave i didn't pass this i didn't pass that you know i didn't i couldn't you know i couldn't jump this hurdle without you know, without falling over on the next one. So, so that's that's often um, that's been a bit a, a source of business too, and it, it's delightful to help people out to you know get them through to the finishing line. So I don't begrudge it. I don't want I don't want people not to try themselves, but uh, that's been that's been something that's you know I've been able to be be helpful with. Now, when they uh, aren't able to pass those hurdles, is it game over? And they have to re-record under your guidance, or are you able to take what they've done and kind of move past it? Really good, really good question, Greg. If you can stand another analogy from me, um, a a little story, and this is a this is a current story. This is a prospective client that I'm speaking to at the moment. This particular Australian gentleman worked uh, during the 1980s with an institution called the Hollywood Reporter. They have a greater reputation now for the online interviews that they do. And uh, now we know them as a roundtable discussions with, with directors like Quentin Tarantino and Ridley Scott. They'll actually get together in, in a panel discussion and talk about different elements of movie directing or experiences with different actors. And so they have these combination of people on the technical side of filmmaking as well as the actors themselves. Anyway, so this guy, uh, John, that I'm speaking to at the moment, he was a journalist with the Hollywood Reporter, and each year for 10 years, he went to the um, to the Cannes Film Festival, 
And while he was there, he he interviewed celebrities, um, Peter Sellers, Faye Dunaway, Tom Cruise, and there's this great long raft. He's got something like 80 interviews that, as most journalists do, they'll take along a micro cassette with them and they'll actually record the interview so that they can then go back, re-listen to it and you know, make sure they don't miss anything when they're actually writing the article. So the only reason they t- they do the recording, it never needed to be of any kind of uh, decent quality because it was just had to be good enough that the journalist could use it to review the information and not forget anything or any, you know, any great golden nuggets that were within the interview. So, so this is what John has done, and he's got a collection of these interviews that run anywhere from five minutes to an hour. George Harrison was an hour-long interview apparently. So John sort of said, look, I'm thinking now, look, I'm retired now, Dave. You know, that was back in the 80s. I've been, I've been retired for 18 months and I want a project. I'm wondering all these recordings that I have in my drawer, you know, is this rubbish or is this, is this gold? Do you reckon we might be able to develop a project to put these all together into some sort of audio book? So he's planning to introduce and position each of, each of the interviews at the beginning. So explain that at the time uh, Tom Cruise was... 21 years of age, he just they just released Top Gun, and Top Gun was getting its first airing and first showing at the at the Cannes Film Festival. Do do I always get um, an acceptable uh, level of quality from my authors? The answer is if I haven't set them up in the environment, set them up on the equipment, and tested them, and then run those tests that I know need to be done to make sure that the audio is going to be able to jump the audio book hurdles, then it becomes a, a longer conversation. We need to talk it through. We need to examine your audio and work it out. So some of these recordings from John were recorded in a car in traffic. There's another one that's terrible, terrible quality where there's this, it's this it sounds like there's a, like a garbage truck that comes in in the middle of the interview. So we've got all of this background noise that, that uh, to a large extent we're going to have to try and try and remove to get these things at least to a to the standard where it can be published, but also to actually improve the quality so that people can so it's more legible to somebody who's trying to trying to listen to it. So again, another really long answer to your question, but um, for someone like uh, for someone like Greg, if in your environment at home, Greg, we you and I talk together. Th- through it, you set up in your environment, you've got your headphones, you've obviously got a good sounding microphone. There's not much echo in the room that, you know, I'd be I'd be ninety-nine percent happy with the recording that Greg had done of his podcast episodes or his the recording of his audiobook because you're in the right environment. But the audiobook companies have they've got a low tolerance level to background noise, which means things like soundscapes that you would normally do in, in a score for a movie, where you have things like background noise uh, background music and you'll have sound effects like people's footsteps or conversation going on in the background it could be actually quite difficult to get those those kind of recordings produced as audiobooks because of these kind of now arbitrary rules as to how much background noise you can have so the robots don't distinguish between someone talking in the background versus you know the sound of electronic rumble or hiss or or whatever so it's it's there's it, quite a balancing act to get these to get these recordings through sometimes, yeah. How long does this process take usually, both recording and the editing? Let's say, let's say Greg's produced a 40,000-word book. That's about the average length for a, a business. It's going to be about five to five and a half hours worth of audio. And um, Greg would say, you know, Dave, it's only a short book. You know, it's, it's going to take me six hours to record and I'll be finished. And as we mentioned before, um, Greg will then come back to me at the end of the week 
and he will have finished the recording and he will have done it in probably one hour, like one hour sessions. Often an hour is enough. So in the evening, the house is quiet. The kids have all gone to bed. The birds have all gone to sleep and, you know, things are settled within the house and the rest of the family are, you know, quietly in another room watching TV or something like that. It's the perfect time to record. So between, say, 8 p.m. in the evening through to 11, 11 p.m., that's the sweet spot. That's the great time to record. Everything's quiet. You know, you might pick off an hour, maybe an hour and a half, and then go, Phew, you know, well, he was right. You know, that's there's a fair bit of energy in that. I think I've had enough for tonight. And then you might skip a couple of days. So you can fit it in. What I'm saying is you can fit it in with your lifestyle. So you don't need to go from, you know, flat out from the start line to the finish all in one take. It's too exhausting, and we can hear it. We can hear the author tiring. You can hear it in someone's voice. They, their tone becomes flatter. And also they instinctively start speaking faster. As you see the finishing line approaching, it starts galloping and people start skipping over their words. And then, of course, you start making more mistakes. You start misreading a lot more because you're, you're jumbling over your words and you're missing syllables and stuff like that. So, so basically that's what's happened at the end of the week. It'll be, you know, there'll be two or three sessions on three nights Greg's, Greg's finished the recording, sends it over to me. I said, Greg, it sounds fantastic. You've been remembering to have the sipper bottle, like just have little drinks of water along the way, keep your, keep your mouth moist. That's an important thing, very important. Otherwise, we get all these clicking sounds and we can hear you, you know, trying to work up saliva in your mouth and the microphone picks up all of that. And so at the end of that week and then the week after that, that will usually be the time that I'll take to edit the book. So I'll spend upwards of 20 hours in the next week uh, doing the editing. So I'll listen to your book from top to tail. And at the end of so at the end of two weeks, I'll have some product that I'll be able to send back to Greg. I'll leave it with Greg for a few days just to maybe sample some of it, you know, go through and do a little spot check through the audio or give it to a friend. Um, a partner's often good. Um, as, as we all know, our partner's uh, can be very, very frank and very honest in their criticism. <laughs> so, so often they're a really good, they're a really good audience. But be careful not to give it to you. Be careful not to give it to anyone who loves you too much, because sometimes they might, they might swing the other way and say, you know, Greg, oh, Greg, it sounds fantastic. I loved all of it. It was fantastic. So they're, they're coming from a space which is more about not wanting to hurt you about something. So sometimes a really positive review are the things that you. Uh, the most suspicious of you know, going really I thought it was that good like really <laughs> so so it's great to get some opinion you know pick some people you aren't particularly good friends with you know somebody sometimes a, a harsh critic is a much better one you know someone who doesn't really know you or particularly like you very much at that stage you'll come back with an approve or a not approve and we'll make any changes that you need to make next stage is to upload it to the distributor that is done within the about three or four hour space then basically we wait. So after a week or two, you'll see your book released at the early audiobook retailers. So audiobooks.com, Bookmate, they tend to release fairly early. Within three to four weeks, usually um, Apple Books have published your book and it's ready for purchase or subscription. And the other the other book retailers, and there's around about 15 of them all together. And usually the last one to come through is Audible Amazon. So Audible Amazon can take usually six weeks, sometimes up to eight or nine. So if we put do all the maths on that, let's allow um, two months for your book to be completely published, plus a week for editing, editing and uh, and approving, and then the week before. So 
10 weeks is the longest that the whole thing takes. So about two and a half months from dead start, dead stop to completely published everywhere. Do you ever have authors that kind of augment their books with like personal stories or examples as they're reading their chapters, or is it just straight from the, from the published book? It's a trade-off that we have to talk about, actually, because Amazon, uh, a facility that they provide for the books, we were discussing earlier about, um, about people who might be travel sick, for example, who might be up to a certain section in their ebook, and then they want to get on the plane, but they want to be able to go back to their Audible, to their Audible or Amazon account, and they want to be able to pick up where they left off. But, in the, but the bookmark is now in the audio book, so they want to listen to the audio version. So in order to be able to get people to, to merge seamlessly between one and the other, there's a process called Amazon Whisper Sync. Now, Whisper Sync, in order for that to be workable um, for your customers, it needs to be the case that um, it needs to be the case that the ebook version and the audiobook version need to be, in terms of content, better than 90, 96% the same. So in order to jump that hurdle, we might be able to squeeze in like a few little personalized sentences, you know, like, you know, you know welcome to the, this version of the audiobook. Look, I just wanted to add this extra bit to welcome you to the audio version. This is why I decided to do the audio version in the first place because my customers were demanding it, blah, blah, blah. So you might get away with, you know, a few paragraphs. But if you start drifting too far away from the um, from the ebook version, then you will miss that opportunity for the whisper sync. Which, from what I've heard anecdotally from people, they, they like that feature. They like to be able to flip from from the from the ebook version to the audiobook version. That would be the compromise. And the other aspect is it too is that people think that ad libbing can come at a cost as well. That even though you're feeling nice and relaxed at the mic and you're feeling confident, and you know you. You know, hey, I've I've got this thing licked, and I can I can just um, Jerry Seinfeld a few <laughs> paragraphs. They often don't turn out that well. You, you you are actually better reading from a script. So so I'm, I'm, when you start ad libbing, then there's much more um ah uh, and false starts. You know, it, it it doesn't it doesn't sound quite as professional. And I think from a consumer's listening point of view, it doesn't really do the thing that you're hoping it will. Because it may sound like you're trying to talk to them and engage them directly, but because the customer can't feed back, it's a one-sided conversation. So bottom line, leave it out. I can understand that. I, I've listened to like a James Altucher uh, book before, and he goes on to some personal stories. But I could also see where, yeah, you might get a little too comfortable and you might offend somebody no, that's true. I think I think you do have to be, you know, you do have to be careful, and without, you know, without taking political correctness to its um, its, its ultimate state. But I, I think, you know, showing showing respect, I think, is probably important. So let's go ahead and get ready to wrap this up. What's the number one piece of advice you can give to our listeners? Who are you know, ready to start something? I think the most important element, and it probably makes sense that I would say this, I guess, because I am in the the listening the listening game. Largely, this is about listening, and I, I think in terms of the broad success of the business, remember this one thing that you you were born with two ears and one mouth, and there's a very good reason for that. So, in the early days, uh, just listening to what people's advice is. What their experience was when the, when they were when they were starting their own business. What were the things that they really struggled with? Marketing, for example, like I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. So for me, that became a a massive listening experience. And the best advice that I got 
from a, an expert market, a friend of mine. So again, use your connections, use people that you you know, you know, the questions that you're asking yourself that you think you can do, ask them out to your potential market. Would you like an audio book? If you were to have an audio book, what would it be like? As an author, are you finding that there's an increased demand for audio books in your marketplace? So actually get the market research done first. So if I had had my time over again, I would have spent much more time on that now because I spend a lot of time doing it now. So I've changed my practice where it's not about me saying, I make great audio books, come and buy one from me. We're moving into micro micro learnings, for example, at the moment that you can play on your mobile phone, phone device. Um, what do you authors think about that? Would you like to include an educational, an educational app as part of your book learning experience for your listeners? Is that, is that something that you think would be attractive? So you're getting all of the feedback. So you're starting to understand what the demand will be for your services before you spend a dollar. You, you'll find plenty of things to spend your money on. There's no, you, you won't have to worry about that. <laughs> Don't worry about that side. And that's fine. You can spend and spend and spend, but there needs to be something coming back during that spending period, which is, you know, refilling the coffers. So you need to really know where your demand's going to be. So for me, that's, that's the key bit of advice about working as an entrepreneur is talk to as many people as you possibly can in your industry, out of your industry, in your target market. And you'll find that people are very are very happy to talk to you about what they want. People love for someone to come to them and say, hey, tell me about a problem you've got with, with publishing. Can you let me know how I might be able to help solve it? People, people really love that approach and they will often be forthcoming and, and tell you everything you need to know. They'll, they'll tell you what service you can construct to help them. Then you know you're going to have sales. That is great advice. Listen to what the market says. Well, Dave, thank you for being a guest. If anyone needs a book narrated, be sure to see Dave at author2audio.com. Thanks so much, Greg. Dave's just a really great guy, and if you're ever in Melbourne, Australia, you really need to look him up. Some of my key takeaways from my conversation with Dave are the author's own voice provides a sense of authenticity, and he very rarely needs to use a professional voiceover. Audiobooks improve storytelling as you get to hear the author's tone and inflection. And here's a bonus that I hadn't considered. In editing the books, Dave is basically getting a free education on each of the topics covered. Dave's first question to a potential client is, why do you want an audiobook? And after their confused expressions, their explanations help him understand the author's motivations and expectations. He also stated that in 8 out of 10 cases, it's primarily because the readers have demanded it. Dave suggests to authors that they break the recording up into hour-long sessions and that when they are done, they re-record the intro and first chapter as they are warmed up and better understand the process. A 40,000-word-long book typically takes five and a half hours to listen to and 20-plus hours to edit. Most authors make about 100 mistakes per hour of reading that he has to clean up. When Dave is done editing the book, he gives it back to the author, who then dispenses it to various friends and colleagues for their opinion and feedback. After the final cleanup based on the feedback received by Dave, then he uploads it to the various audiobook services such as Audible, Apple Books, Spotify, etc. The whole process takes around two and a half months from start to finish. Now just thinking about this, if you've got any kind of audio background, this seems like it'd be a really great gig. Now join us next week as we talk to Bill Nowicki and discuss how his local podcast has impacted his business and how you could start one too. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. 
check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.